please check out Unfound's store at unfound-podcast.myspreadshop.com. Mar Murray was a 21-year-old from Hanson, Massachusetts. She was a college student majoring in nursing. On the evening of February 9th, 2004, for some reason, Mara was in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and wrecked her car. When police showed up, Mara wasn't at the accident scene. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. There is a kind of mental game I like to play when I'm thinking about disappearances that will be covered by Unfound. I've found this helps me look at the cases in a very different light. What is this cerebral exercise? I imagine the disappearances in which the people don't go missing, or they're found deceased due to foul play or some other means, or there are additional or even fewer facts than in the real investigation. You should try it sometime. For example, what if Dale Kerstetter hadn't disappeared, but had been found shot to death inside the Corning Glass plant where he was the security guard? Would we look at the theft of the platinum from another point of view? Craig Freer, what if his parents never found out that he had been lying about going to work for months? Would they ever have found out? And would he still have eventually gone missing? Allie Lowitzer. What if she had gone missing after getting her check from her job and not before? How would that change the public perception of what happened to her? If at all. This kind of contemplating alternate timeline scenarios takes up more of my time than you would probably guess. But it's so important as I continue to hone my theories on disappearances. Well, with the disappearance of Mar Murray, I will be doing the exact same thing in the summation after this part one interview. And the theme will be taking chances. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Lyonez's website, charlieproject.org. Mar Murray was every parent's dream. She did fantastic in high school. She was an excellent athlete. Mara was friendly. Mara followed her older sister's footsteps going to West Point. But there, things began to unravel a bit. Mara got caught stealing some makeup. And the West Point atmosphere did not fit her as well as it did her sister Julie. Mara transferred to a great school, the University of Massachusetts where she majored in nursing and was doing very well. However, in the months and even days before her disappearance, Mara had issues with her long-distance relationship, the use of a credit card, the wrecking of her father's car, and concerns regarding her other sister, Kathleen. So, on the afternoon of February 9th, 2004, for reasons that are still unclear... 
Mara left the Massachusetts campus in her car, which was running on only three of the four cylinders. Mara went to an ATM and took out $280, almost the entire amount in the account. She then went to a liquor store. Hours later, and several miles away, in Haverhill, New Hampshire, 911 received a call of a car wreck. Minutes later, another caller said that he had an interaction with the driver, who was a young female. An officer arrived about 20 minutes later. The driver was gone. The officer eventually discovered that the car belonged to Fred Murray and that his daughter, Mara, had been driving it. She was never seen again. A search of the area yielded no footprints in the fresh snow. And searches over the past 19 years have never found Mara or anything connected to her, despite her seemingly taking multiple items with her when she left the scene. We at Unfound realize that this is probably the most well-known disappearance of a non-famous person in the United States in the 21st century. So we realize you already know a lot about it. However, we hope that you can put aside all the obsession, sensationalism, and tribal thinking as you try to answer these three questions during the interview. Number one, if Mara was really thinking of running away or committing suicide, why did she take her school books? Number two, if Mara was planning on returning in a few days, why would she drive her car, which was on the verge of breaking down, to somewhere at least two states away where it might strand her? And number three, if Mara got into a car with someone, killer or not, what was going to be her next move given that she was not supposed to be anywhere near New Hampshire that day, that she lied to her school, and that she had driven her car against her father's advice? Mars family could not resist the idea that foul play happened to her not long after her car wreck, although they realize other scenarios are possible. The guest for this episode is Mars' sister, Jolie Murray. Unfound News. For everyone who follows Unfound on social media, and for all of you on the email list, Please be looking for upcoming sales and discounts at Unfound's Spreadshop store. The address is unfound-podcast.myspreadshop.com. Next, for you Patreon and YouTube supporters, in the next few days, keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of Found. I will be going from disappearance to discovery of the RMS Titanic. For everyone else, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast or hit the join button on the YouTube channel. Finally, for everyone, please be looking for the next Unfound Now. This is the YouTube show where I analyze a recent disappearance on every episode. I can't believe I've been doing the series for three years now. Wow. A note before the interview starts. What you're about to hear is roughly the first half of the interview I did with Jolie. After it, you will hear my summation 
which is an analysis of this first part only. Then in part two, you will hear the second half of the interview. I will then do a summation for it and a summation for both parts as a whole. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, the sister of Mara Murray, Julie Murray. Julie, welcome to Unfound. Thanks for having me, Ed. I, I've been looking forward to this and I can't wait to jump right in. Me too. I've been looking forward to this for a while as well. Thank you for appearing and everybody should know we're doing this interview on June 9th of 2023. Let's get started here. Uh, my understanding is that Mara not only has you as a sister, she has other siblings. Why don't you talk about all of the uh, Murray children and your family, just the whole Murray family, kind of the structure. Uh, describe the Murray family as a whole as you could, as well as you can. Yeah, I'm I'm one of five kids. <laughs> um, Mara and I had an older, have an older brother, Freddie. He's quite a bit older than all of the other kids uh, because my mom got pregnant with Freddie. And then she couldn't have kids for about six years. So there's quite a, an age gap there. And then she was able to get pregnant again. And then it was three girls back to back to back in about two year increments. Mm -hmm. So my older sister, Kathleen, unfortunately, she passed away in 2021. And then me, um, the middle, and then Mara, two and a half years younger than myself. Mm -hmm. And then my parents divorced and then Curtis came along and Curtis has a different father. Um, and he also has a pretty big age gap between Mara and Curtis. So wow. we cover many years <laughs> in terms of all the kids. And, uh, you know, our parents were working class parents. We grew up in a small town south of Boston and a typical uh, New England family where, you know, you've got a bunch of kids and you're always playing sports and outdoors. And that's the type of thing that Mara and I loved. Um, and of course, athletics. And so my mother was a nurse and my dad worked at, in nuclear medicine. So we had that medical background in our family. Um, yeah, but growing up in Hanson, Massachusetts is where we're from was great. There wasn't a whole lot to do other than play sports. And so that's what we did. It's, you know, I have to admit, as you know, I, I interview people all over the United States, Canada. I've even done a disappearance in New Zealand. And you're from the Boston area. But I have to say, Julie, you don't have that, that you know, Boston accent with the, you know, what they call uh, non-rhotic English, you know, with the soft R's and everything. That's interesting to me. I, well, I, there's a story behind that. I, I did have a very thick Boston accent all the way until I went into college and I went to West Point. So when I was at West Point, there's a lot of structure and I would say water and yes. the upperclassmen yes. would make me do push-ups because they didn't understand what I was saying. So I quickly learned if I just say the R, I won't have to do as many push-ups. Yeah. <laughs> and so, ah. yeah, okay, so that's just... kind of the, the story behind that. Um, but it does come back. I do get it back when I go back home to visit or in, and when I um, talk on the phone with family. Everybody else in my family is still up in the New England area. So they are still 
very, very much uh, have that Boston accent. And, you know, when my dad comes to visit in Virginia, um, some of my friends say, you know, it'd be helpful if we had some subtitles because we don't know what the heck he's <laughs> What yeah. the heck is he saying? He's like, let's go have a beer. Yes, Get in the car. Right. Yeah. It's it's, <laughs> so wicked, it's funny. right? It's wicked. It's, it's wicked. wicked. That's the word yeah. from up there too. Look at me. Okay. I'm originally from the Pittsburgh area and I had a it still kind of comes out. I have a Pittsburgh accent once in a while, but it's nothing, you know, that New England accent obviously sticks out all by itself there. Uh, you know, very unique. All right. Just wanted to point that out. Maybe some people were thinking. She says she's from New England, but I really don't hear that. Now we have the explanation for that. Thank you. Uh, going back to the three daughters in the middle, obviously uh, connected, you know, just by a few years difference. All of you very close. Um, would you say that you, Mara and Kathleen, very similar or different? Or how would you say? What would you say? Well, we, we were very close. Um, and we are very similar in that we're all introverted. Mm. And that's kind of the through line with my family. Everyone knows the Murray kids are very introverted type of type of kids. And um, my older sister, Kathleen, she was more interested in arts and music. And she was an outstanding um, artist. I didn't necessarily get that gene. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. um, so I was more into sports and that was primarily what what interests me. And Mara was a good mix of both Kathleen and I in that she loved sports and athletics and the outdoors, but she also had that artistic gene that Kathleen and Freddie and Curtis both have. Um, and Mara loved music and was very musical and also, I did not get that that gene. Um, so Mara was a good mix of both of the sisters. But yeah, I mean, having two and a half years separating all of us, naturally, we were close. Right. So it would have been a situation in high school, maybe one of you's a senior, then maybe the other one's like in 10th grade and eighth grade, something like that. Right. 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 Okay. Very good. All right. Let's now just talk about, just to get a little flavor for the the Murray family there. Thank you for that. Uh, let's just now talk about Murray. Of course, that is why we are here. Um, you've already talked a little bit about uh, Mara. Uh, you know, like you said, a little bit into sports, a little into the autistic side. Uh, what else would you like to say? You maybe stated that, you know, she was introverted like you and your other sister are or were. And, um, you know, what, what maybe you can expound on that uh, a little bit more about her personality, you know, and the her friends and things maybe going up, you know, as a teenager, maybe that time of her life, what, what you understand. Yeah, Mara was very naturally gifted athletically as well as academically. So it didn't take much for her to pick up a subject. And so she excelled in school very easily, was always on our National Honor Society, always straight A's. I don't think she ever got a B um, ah. growing up through high school. Um, that. So that came natural to her as well as running. And um, so those were the two main things. But growing up in a family with five kids, not having a whole bunch of extra money, what my family decided to do was to take us on adventures that were, you know, affordable. And mm -hmm. so that led to hiking and camping. You know, you can get a campsite for $10. <laughs> Right. And it's the best thing for kids to be outside in nature, go hiking, camping, build a fire. So 
everyone in my family just loves the outdoors. Um, Mara especially loved that outdoor adventure. She loved animals. Um, she was very, very humble, you know, for as smart as she was and as athletically gifted she was, you would never know it because she was never the one to seek attention or brag. She just was, you know, very uh, reserved in that regard. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we did for fun growing up and that carried through into college. Um, and still to this day, everyone in my family, any chance we get to go on a hike or go get outdoors, go for a walk, we we jump at that. Yeah. What about some of her friends? I, we don't have to get into, of course, any names or anything, but what did she like to do with her friends, like hanging out where you grew up? Was she more like uh, like a leader of the group or kind of just go along to get along? What would you say, you know, in that respect of her, her life? Friends? Well, Mara surrounded herself with other kids that were very um, like-minded. So her all her friends were at the top of the class and they were all in high honors. And so they competed with each other for the top grades. And Mara graduated fourth in her class at high, in high school. Um, and her other friends were first and second and, you know, all in the, the top of the class. Yeah, and nice. most of her friends also were on the cross country or track team. Um, Mara was a, a people person. So she made friends easily. And um, her high school friends were just a great group of girls and very tight knit. And they went on adventures together and went on cabin trips. Um, but they were, you know, they were outstanding people and have grown up to, you know, do great things in the world and are amazing humans. So that's who Mara surrounded herself with. Okay, very good. Thank you. Now, you uh, stated earlier, you actually went to West Point, correct, right? Yes. And then Mara at least started at West Point. Maybe we need to, being that you went through it, she went through it, maybe we need to explain to listeners, this isn't just something where you just sign up and go like, you know, most, you know, colleges. There has to be like a sponsor or appointment or something like that. If you could just quickly go through that and how was it that, you know, maybe just have a family have one, your family has two. How did that all come about? Yeah, it's a very rigorous process to apply for the service academies. So the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, Coast Guard Academy, and Military Academy. So when I was in high school, I knew that my family wasn't going to be able to pay for college because we have all these kids and, you know, my my parents are working all the time. So one summer I went to a program at the Coast Guard Academy and it was just a week long summer program and I absolutely loved it. I'm in high school and I go to this camp and there's a bunch of structure and people are telling me to walk a certain way and do a bunch of physical activities and push-ups and I just loved that the regimen and the discipline. So I went back and I started to explore this, the service academies and I was running at the time and I got a recruiting letter from the United States Military Academy when I was a junior in high school. So I was like, whoa, this is this could be like the Coast Guard Academy. I want to look into this. So mm -hmm. I looked into it. I started the process of applying, which you know, you've got to do a lot. You've got to take medical tests, physical tests. You've got to get letters of recommendation. You got to do yeah. essays. 
Um, but the biggest barrier is you have to get a congressional nomination. That's right. right. So there's a whole process to that. So I went through all that, did all that. Then I went to a, a recruiting visit at West Point. And I was, I think, early in my senior year. And I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. So I applied. I got in. I also applied to the Naval Academy. Um, I got in there as well. So off to the service academy I went. And I remember my first year at West Point, the first break that you get, you get to come back home. I think it's in the fall. And I was just glowing and telling Mara, wow, it was amazing. And I think she would love it. And so I kind of convinced her that she Uh. should also look into this. So at that time, Mara was getting recruited by top colleges, you know, in New England. So Harvard, Yale, Brown, and she didn't even apply. She applied to one school, and that was West Point because she wanted, there was no question. She wanted to be in school with me. And I had, you know, made it sound so awesome that, you know, it was a done deal. She did the whole process, no problem, and mm-hmm. got her, her nomination from Senator Ted Kennedy, just as I had. And then she joined me at West Point. Wow. And so you would have been what a, uh, did it go by the, like a junior? Was she a freshman or how, how were you separated there? So there was two years separation. So I was going into my junior year when she showed up for the summer, we call it Beast Barracks, um, (laughs) summer training. And Uh Beast Barracks is the absolute hardest part because here you have a bunch of type A personalities all thrown in in a group and everyone's competitive. And um, it's, you know, you're being challenged in ways that you can't even, you don't know. I mean, you're challenged with the physical aspect. You're challenged with no sleep. You're challenged with having to memorize all of this knowledge and learn and march and salute and how to hold a rifle, clean a rifle. So it's just, and it's that way by design, you know, because they want to weed out the people that that don't belong. So Mara had no problem with it, breezed right through. Um, But I remember one time when I was, I was part of the the cadre that trained the new cadets, we call them, that went through Beast Barracks. So that was a major perk for Mara to have an older sibling at the academy because, you know, I could sneak in cookies and other contraband that was not allowed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I remember one day I snuck her in some cookies or whatever, and I found her just sobbing. And that that immediately struck me. And I realized she doesn't love it Mm. as much as I do. Uh-huh. You know, because it takes a certain type of personality of to go through the emotion of just being yelled at all the time, having to do push-ups, and it's a lot of stress, and you're, you know, you're having to meet new people, and in the military side of it, and she just, she didn't love it as much as I did. Okay. Okay, and that was your first inkling 
that something wasn't right. And of course we know that she ended up transferring out. Was it right after that? Or did, did you try to try to coach her up a little bit saying you can get through this or, you know, were you more uh, cadet at that time? Or were you more sister at that time? Well, I knew that if I knew that once she got past that beast barracks, that first summer, it, once the academic year started, she would have no problem because calculus and, and, you know, physics and all that, she would breeze right through that. And that's where I struggled. So I encouraged her to stick it out. You know, she was over halfway through. Um, and I remember telling her, why are you letting these idiot cadets get to you? Because these idiot cadets were my classmates and I knew them. And I, and I'm like, this is just part of the process that they, yeah. they don't, it's not a personal attack on you if you don't remember what's for breakfast, you know, because that's one of the things you had to recite or I was like, J don't let them get to you. I know these people, you know, everybody goes through this. You'll be fine. And, um, you know, uh, she made it through and then we entered into, she entered into her first um, year academically and that's also the hardest because you're the underclassmen, we call them plebes, and you do get a lot of hazing and that type of thing, as well as, you know, your military responsibilities. You're taking these high-level math and science courses, then you're taking survival swimming, and it's just, it's a lot. I mean, a cadet schedule is insane, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, again, it's that way by design. Right. On yeah. Yes. So she made it through the first year of West Point, which is the absolute hardest year. And then it was in her second year that she got into a bit of trouble. Um, and she was having to miss class because she had to go through this honor board process where she had to, um, she took, she stole some makeup from a, a post exchange on her second summer. So that violated the cadet honor code. So she had to, face this honor board and, you know, should have to deal with her punishment. Okay. Um, but that kind of set her back. And one of the yeah. things while all of this is going on, one of the things that happened is 9-11. All right. Oh, this would have been so, right around that time. Okay. September. Yeah. Okay. So cadets have two years to decide whether they want to stay and pursue a military career, which is five years active duty and then three years um, individual ready reserve. So that's an eight year obligation. And as a 20 something year old, that seems like an eternity. Does, yeah. Yeah. And so her, her trouble and the honor board coupled with, the fact she knew she was probably headed to Iraq or Afghanistan, almost guaranteed, mm -hmm. uh, informed her decision to leave before her punishment came down. So a lot of people say that Mara was kicked out of West Point. That is not true. Okay. She left before that punishment came down. And, you know, I've had many friends go through that honor board process that did way worse and were not kicked out. Okay. What do you think happened there? Did she not realize what she was doing was uh, something that was wrong? Or I mean, did you have a chance to talk to her about it at some point? Once again, sister to sister uh, about it was just uh, a lapse in judgment or she didn't realize what she did was a mistake. Like, you know, I, or, well, or what? How yeah, you, you know, how do you understand it now? I was just as confused as everybody else. So I asked her, I remember clearly, I said, Mara, why did you do that? 
And she just looked down in embarrassment and said, I don't know. And so part of me was thinking it was a way out or a cry for help so that she didn't have to outright quit. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the way you look at it. Of course, it's been 19 years. That's how you look at it now. Still. To the right. Okay. Right. And I knew she wasn't happy there. I mean, I knew, I knew that first summer that this probably wasn't the best place. She probably would have been better suited at, you know, a Yale or a Brown or something without all the additional military stressors. Right. And being that you were, you went through it, of course, you graduated from the military academy, right? And, yes. and did your service and everything. So you know what that's like. And maybe even though you and Mar were very much similar in many ways, there was just something in there a little bit different between the two of you. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, I think it was the, I think it was a good decision for her because, you know, she decided to transfer to UMass Amherst and pursue a career in nursing, uh, which is what my mother did. And Mara always loved to help people and take care of people. And that was not something that was offered at West Point. You know, there's no nursing program at West Point, mm -hmm. you know, so that is something that she pursued. And I got to see her, you know, many times when she was in the nursing program at UMass and she seemed much more happy. Okay. And we have and to remember, she, you know, we have to remember something also transferring to UMass and then one, what, what you're generally... What year would this have been? Of course, we've already like in this 2001, 2002 era. When did she go to UMass specifically? She went in 2001. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. All right. Yep. And we have to remember, yeah, we have to remember UMass is a good school. This isn't some yes. community college. I mean, if people don't know, UMass, it's not Ivy League, but it's pretty, pretty, pretty good, you know, high up their school. Very, you know, uh, everybody should know that. I, I know that just being from the Northeast myself. So we have to keep that in mind. It's not like she went from there to community college or something. She went to a fantastic school that a lot of people would be happy to get into. And so you say she was doing better there. Right. And the nursing program at UMass was one of the best, is one of the best in the country. So it was difficult to even get into the nursing program. And she got, not only did she get into it, she was on the dean's list. I mean, she was excelling and she, you know, she was much happier and she was able to experience what real college life was, you know, where you didn't have to get up at a certain time, you know, 530 in the morning and march in your uniform to breakfast and everything is structured. You could hang out with friends. You could you had much more freedom and that's something you do not get at West Point. And I think that's something that was missing considering, you know, she did have more of a people person uh, personality. Okay. Very good. All right. So she goes to UMass after one year at West Point, she goes to UMass 2001. All right. Is doing very well in nursing. Did she have any school uh, friends from like high school? Any people she already knew when she got there? Or did she have to make friends from scratch? Well, she always kept in touch with her group of high school friends. So they would have at least one or two gatherings per year where they'd do a t-shirt exchange. Each one would bring a t-shirt from whatever college they were at and they would exchange t-shirts. They had an email distro and they kept in pretty good contact while Mara was at West Point, but more so when she was at UMass. None of those 
close friends from um, high school were at UMass, but they were not far. So she she kept in contact with them, and she did meet some new friends um, at UMass. Okay, very good. So let's move on to this relationships. Uh, of course, a lot of people know about Ma Mara's disappearance, and they've heard about how she had a boyfriend at the time. How did that come about? Did she have any boyfriends before that? I'm not here to get deep into her romance life or anything, but did she have a boyfriend at, at UMass? And how did the two eventually like become separated? She's up there in New England and he's somewhere else. Maybe we can get into that now. Yeah, Mar had a high school boyfriend that she was pretty close with. Um, they went separate ways when Mara went to West Point. Um, she, you know, had some small little flings at um, West Point, you know, typical 18, 19, 20 year old relationships. Um, ah. And uh, eventually, during her honor board process, she met her boyfriend, Bill, who she was dating when she went missing. So she was dating Bill while at West Point. And then when she went to UMass, they continued that relationship. It was long distance at the time. Bill graduates West Point and then gets stationed in Oklahoma. So that's even more distance. So yeah. they were on again, off again, as typical, you know, young relationships are. And there was some infidelity, of course. Um, but they tried to make it work. And uh she was, she did have periods where they broke up and Mara was with other people and Bill was as well. Um, but, you know, I would describe it as just the typical 20 something year old relationship. Okay. So he was a cadet too. Did you, uh, as an upperclassman, did you know Bill like separately from him? Uh, I don't know how big the military academies are. I don't know how big these classes are or anything. So did you know him separately from him actually dating your sister Mara? I, I knew of him. Um, he, we didn't run in the same circles, um, but I knew who he was. West Point classes are very small and um, there's only 15% women. So typically everybody knows all the women or all the guys, all the guys do. So I, I actually dated one of Bill's best friends for a while when I was at West Point. So that's how I knew the name and I knew him, but we never hung out at all. Um, but I definitely knew who he was. Okay, very good. All right, so uh, he graduates uh, from the, the from the military academy, but Mar is still in school at UMass, getting her nursing degree. Yes. Okay, very good. All right, so she's there, and the perception is that she's doing well in school. You said she's on the dean's list and uh, doing very well in school, good grades, and doing all the things that I guess regular college. Um, uh, people do in contrast to you and other people who've gone to the military academies, totally different experience. Okay. Let's move on to some things. Uh, these are some things I, we just have to cover. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but given that they are known out there, I want, uh, I want Julie to have a chance to talk about them and, uh, in her, in her own words, even because we know everybody else, a lot of other people have used their own words to explain these things. So Julie now gets to use her own words to explain these things. Let's first start with Mara using somebody else's credit card. Uh, how did you personally find out about this? Did you ever have a chance to talk to her about this? Of course, people may be automatically going to go back to, 
you know, the little bit of trouble that she got in the service academy. Do you see those two things connected in some way? How do you view this, what she was doing with somebody else's credit card? So the story about the credit card was um, she obtained a credit card number and it was written down on a piece of paper and she used it to order food late at night. And that is because my sister Mara had an eating disorder. And so she would order these large sums of food um, more than one person would need. Um, and it was typically late, late at night. And that's goes back to the shame of the eating disorder. And, you know, people right. normally do it, you know, alone at night. Um, and so that's something that Mar did struggle with and okay. she was seeking help, uh, for it. Okay. Um, she was better. She was getting better. Um, after she disappeared, I found a self-help book for overcoming eating disorders. Okay. So it's really sad for me to talk about, obviously I'm not saying that what she did was right or justified, but I'm just kind of giving a little context to it. Okay. Um, that sometimes people overlook. Um, so it's not clear whether she was the only person using this number um, because I've heard, you know, and I, I can't speak to how it is in regular college because I didn't go to regular college, but right, right. I heard that sometimes people get a parent's card and they pass it around. Um, so I don't know if it was a situation like that or not. Regardless, it wasn't right. It was wrong. And um, Mara was caught using it and confronted um and she immediately owned up to it and didn't deny it and um was put on a probation um so she had to have three months of good behavior okay whose card was this by the way do we know to this day whose card it was or is that a mystery um the the police know whose card it was it seemed to be someone that mara did not know okay all right. So it was on a piece of paper somewhere on the college campus or somewhere that she was. And she used that to combat, I guess, because of this disorder that she had. Was this like anorexia or bulimia, something like that? I'm not a doctor, but something like that. Right. Okay. Yep. And when did this happen? And you don't have to have the exact date, but when was this? Uh, in, in what year that did this happen? Um, this would have been sometime during 2003. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I so I didn't know about any of this until after the disappearance. So it wasn't something that right. Mara raised up to me because, of course, you know, I'm the the regimented, you know, rule, rule abiding sister, you know, mm -hmm. and that this that wouldn't be something that she would want me to weigh in on because I would have told her, you know, what I thought about it, which was what the hell are you doing? Right. Of course. <laughs> Did she, uh, did you, the, anybody else, and did, were you, was, was the rest of your family just as in the dark about it as you were, or did like your father, your mother, other siblings, friends of hers know about this, or was this something that only a very small group of people knew? I think she did confide in my sister Kathleen, who would have told my mother, um, but I, it, they didn't tell me about it because they knew how I would react and, right. you know, I was also a kid at that the time and I didn't know how to react to both eat the eating disorder because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the complexities of it. 
the psychology behind it. I just didn't get it. And I, they knew that about me. And so they would try not to okay. allow me to, to, to give my opinion because it would have been a strong opinion. <laughs> okay. All right. And this eating disorder, is this something that went back to high school or is this something that was more recent? This is something that started at West Point. It did. Okay. And this is something that is prevalent both at West Point and in the Army um, because of the pressures that you go through as a cadet and as a woman and as an athlete. Um, it's something she picked up on at West Point. I have so many friends that are also West Pointers that also had eating disorders while cadets. Okay. And given that she used somebody else's credit card, uh, was, was she hurting for money? Uh, was this a situation she didn't have her own credit card? And you said your family is very middle class. You have a lot of kids. Of course, like you said, going on vacations where you have, don't have to spend a lot of money. Was this also uh, an indication like most college kids uh, situation kind of short on money, kind of that going on as well? Yeah, I think I think she was. Yeah. Not any more than any other college kid, but she did have two jobs. She had a job working at an art gallery to make some spare money and a job checking IDs in the dorm at UMass. So she did, on top of her uh, academic schedule and nursing program, she's working these two jobs. You know, she's having to buy food and she's having to pay for gas. So she did have some money coming in. And of course, we hated to ask our parents for money and we would never ask our parents for money because we knew things were tight. And so I think that had um, um, played into her decision to, to use this credit card. Okay. Regarding going to UMass, uh, did she get a school loan or something? Of course, going to a service academy, that's, you know, the taxpayers are saying, we thank you for your service. But going to UMass, did she get a school loan or or how, what was going on there? When Mara first went to UMass, she was actually on a scholarship. So she was, wow. she had a cross-country track scholarship. Wow. She eventually got hurt. And so I'm not, I'm still not sure whether her scholarship was rescinded or not because she wasn't actively running. Mm -hmm. um, but she did have money coming in through the scholarship. And then, you know, my dad would have helped out with the tuition and, and anything else that she needed. But again, we hated to ask him and burden him with um, having to provide funds. Okay. And we did, but most importantly, she got caught doing this. It wasn't like she was getting kicked out of school. She just had to stay out of trouble this probationary period. And was she still in this probationary period when she went missing or did this happen after? Right. She was still in the probation period when she went missing. Okay. Very yeah. good. Let's move on. Uh, she, like you said, she had this job, one of the jobs, and there is this phone call in which she seemed very upset about it. And she made a comment about her sister. Now she was not talking about you. She was talking about your other sister, Kathleen, at least that is suspected. What can you say about this phone call that seemed to upset her to people who were actually there to witness it? The Thursday night before Mara disappeared, she was at her security desk job checking IDs, and she got a call from my sister Kathleen at about 10.20, I believe, p.m., okay. and this is all based on her phone record, so we know that she talked to Kathleen, 
on her cell phone that she had just gotten that Christmas. That was her first ever cell phone. Remember, this is back in 2004. Yes. Uh, so everyone, right. everyone didn't walk around with a cell phone. So that's she right. had that's this new cell phone. I got my first one too. So I know the feeling. So yeah, about yeah. that time. Very good. Thank so you. Please continue. She's talking to Kathleen and after Mara disappeared, Kathleen said that that conversation was kind of routine. Kathleen was just talking about the problems that she was having with her fiance at the time. And Kathleen struggled with addiction and was going to rehab to try to beat um, alcohol. And when she got out of rehab, her fiance at the time took her directly to a liquor store. That's nice. So, yeah, so that you, you can kind of, figure out what type of person that that he was. Right. Um, so that was something that Kathleen said that they talked about, but we're unsure whether that upset Mara to the degree that it did, um, because Mara became very upset. But Mara didn't become very upset until several hours later. So she's working a desk job. She she has this call with Kathleen. Kathleen tells her about this situation. Obviously it's upsetting if somebody you love relapses who's trying actively to beat their addiction because sure. Kathleen was was trying. She was in rehab. And about 12 o'clock, Mara talked to her boyfriend, Bill. And I've asked Bill, you know, what was the nature of that conversation? And he says that it was routine and Mara didn't seem upset. And, and Kathleen said that Mara did not seem upset. So we know that she talked to those two people on her cell phone. But what we don't know is who she talked on the dorm phone. So when she's at the security desk job, there's a dorm phone. So she may have talked to somebody else um, on the dorm phone. I've never seen those records. Okay. But sometime after midnight, Mara becomes so upset that she's unable to... Sh- to speak. She's unable to do her job, to check IDs. So her supervisor for the security desk job was called in and the supervisor comes to Mara and Mara's just despondent. And when asked what was wrong, all Mara could say was my sister, my sister. So the assumption is she was talking about Kathleen, but Mm. I did not talk to Mara that night. And I don't know what was bothering her. And I've tried to figure out whether Kathleen confiding in Mara about relapsing would have caused that extreme breakdown. And I'm not sure. I'm I'm still not sure to this day because Kathleen never indicated that Mara was upset during that call. Now, you have to remember, Kathleen was confiding in Mara and obviously Mara was there to empathize with her and and be strong for her. So... If it did affect Mara to that degree, I don't think Mara would have broken down and, and, you know, while she was trying to console my sister Kathleen. So I've thought about that. Like, did it hit her after? But why two hours after? Was it something? Was it something else? What did she mean by my sister? These are questions I still can't answer. 19 years later, still unclear. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask, is there any possibility that this person did, I, I, maybe I should ask you this way, this, did multiple people 
uh, noticed that Mara was distressed, or were we just taking the word of one person that she was distressed? Well, it was at least two people because somebody saw Mara not checking IDs at the desk, and that person called the supervisor. So at least two people. All right. So So, okay, please. Yeah. So the supervisor consoles Mara and walks her to her dorm, ends her shift early, and you know offers to sit with her or go to Dunkin' Donuts with her. But Mara said that, no, she's fine. She's She has a roommate, which she did not have a roommate. And I think that was Mara's way of trying to unburden her right. with having to sit there. And, you know, when you're going through that type of emotion, a lot of people want to be alone and want to kind of work through that alone. Right. So that's why I think she said, you know, I'm good. I have a roommate just to kind of unburden her supervisor. All right. So Mara at the time living by herself, like a one, one bed room uh, at UMass. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. We have to remember when you say 12 o'clock, you're meaning midnight. So this is yeah. happening late at night that this is all going on. Yes. Right. Okay. All right. Maybe we should have uh, talked about this beforehand because we were maybe a little bit out of the line of the timeline, but we're going to have to now talk about this. The car wreck. It happened after the Thursday night breakdown. So Thursday night, she has the breakdown. We're unsure why. Then Friday, there was a snowstorm. Classes were canceled. Nothing really seemed to happen on Friday. Um, Then Saturday comes along and my dad travels up from Connecticut to go car shopping because Mara's car at the time was his old car, a 1996 Saturn. And it it broke down one time when Mara was traveling from UMass to Connecticut to visit my dad. So she gets to where my dad was staying at this travel job in Connecticut. And she's like, Dad, the car is smoking. And he said, OK, well, let's let's take it to a mechanic. So they t- and this is um, weeks before. So they take the car to the mechanic and the mechanic says, well, it's down a cylinder. I don't think I'll have time while she's here just over the next two days to fix it. Um, but you know, it needs to be fixed. Uh, Mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is my dad didn't feel comfortable with Mara driving the Saturn on three cylinders smoking all the way back to UMass. So he drives it back to UMass and she follows him in his new Toyota Corolla. So they get the car back to UMass. My dad puts it in the back lot and says, do not drive this car. It's not safe, obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, then he says, we're going to find you a new car. So that was before that was after Christmas. um, of that year. So Mara had been calling around to different ads in the local newspaper to find used cars. And that's in her phone records as well. So we knew that she was trying to find new cars. But then this weekend, my dad says, you know what, I'll come up and we'll find you a new car. So he comes up Saturday, they're looking for a new car. Um, They found a couple that they liked. And um, it was getting late in the day and the shops were closing. So they don't end up buying a car that day. So that night they go out and get some food. And then Mara gets a notification or someone lets her know that, hey, there's this dorm party in the dorms at UMass Saturday night. 
So Mara tells my dad, hey, can I take your car to go to the dorms? And he says, yes. So my she takes my dad's new car and they go to this dorm party. And this, this dorm party is just confusing and it's um we don't have a whole lot of information about it because the people that were there aren't very forthcoming about what happened so anyway the party ends and instead of going back to her dorm room to go to sleep mara gets into my dad's new toyota corolla and heads off campus and while she's driving off campus she hits head on uh, drives head on into a guardrail and totals my dad's car. Yeah, so that would have naturally upset Mara because here my dad came all the way up to get her a new car and now she smashes up his his car. Yeah. So the police are called and a tow truck comes out. They don't cite Mara for DUI or anything. A lot of people think that she she got a DUI that night. She did not. Okay. And they also did not administer any um, medical attention. So, you know, she caused significant damage to the car and could have had a head injury, but she wasn't looked at at all. So she gets into the tow truck. The tow truck tows the car to this um, auto body shop that was right next to my dad's motel. So my dad or Mara jumps in the tow truck and gets dropped off at my dad's motel and then the next morning she tells him I, cra- I cracked up your car and she was so upset and mm-hmm. you know cuz she hated to disappoint and burden my dad financially like that so mm-hmm. people say you know my dad screamed at her and yelled at her but that those people don't know my dad because he has never yelled at any of us for anything and i i wish you know, when I screwed up that he would just yell at me because it would make me feel better. Um, so that that's not true either. Uh, so he drops her off at the dorm. This is on Sunday, the day before she disappeared and says, call me, we'll get this taken care of. Um, he, he found out insurance would cover it. So it would be a $500 deductible and he got a rental and he tried to reassure Mara that everything was okay, but again, Mara was her worst own worst critic, and she was really upset. Um, the way you look at that, what if you've seen the police report, the accident report, what does it seem like, and what did Mara say? Why did Mara say that she wrecked the car? What did she say happened? Uh, did, I'm sure she had to tell your father, or your father something. What did she say, and what does the police report say? Well, my dad asked her, why did you drive it if you had been drinking? And she said, well, I hadn't, I had stopped hours before and I was okay to drive. And she, the police report says driver inattentiveness. And basically she slid on some sand and crashed head on into the guardrail. So I think, you know, a combination of being tired, having alcohol previously, being dark maybe she wasn't familiar with that intersection i'm not sure okay very good had she ever uh, of course by this time how old is she at this time right around the time at the same age that she went missing she'd been driving 21. for a few years was she accepted as being a decent driver uh no she wasn't a great driver she uh right. well, thank you for being she honest. was a fast driver she drove okay. very very fast all the time all right, yeah. yeah okay well then that would explain it 
Yeah. Okay. All right. But to your knowledge, though, that's the first real accident that she had. Yes. Okay. All right. So she's in this wreck. Could be a combination of things, but we really don't know. We're just uh, guessing here. She may, it's possible, I guess, that maybe she had been drinking, but maybe it wasn't over the legal limit. We're not saying she was necessarily doing anything illegal, but as the commercials uh, like to tell us, you know, impairment begins at the first drink. Maybe. We just don't know. But she's yeah. in this wreck. Nobody else is, uh, nobody else is hurt. No other cars are damaged. It's just the car, the guardrail and Mara. So what was the plan then? Uh, father finds out about it and seems to be cool, at least decent headed about it, cool headed about it and the insurance and everything. So what was the plan from there to get that car fixed? And still, of course, Mara still needs another car for, for school. What was the plan then? Yeah. So the car wreck on Saturday night ruined all plans for the continuation of the car shopping from Saturday. So they had the the couple cars picked out and the plan was to go back Sunday for those shops that were open. I don't think all of them were open, but of course, when all this happened, those plans were out the window. So obviously they weren't getting more a new car. The focus now was figure out how my dad was going to get back to his job in Connecticut and then to work the insurance. So my dad told Mara she needs to go get the accident form so that he could fill out the claim through the insurance. And he told her to do that on Monday when they opened and um, she agreed to do that. And they had a phone call um, Sunday night just talking over the plan. And, and so that was the plan, get the insurance claim straightened out, and then they could focus on returning back to getting more a more reliable car. Okay, so just to put this in the timeline, on Thursday night, there's these phone calls. You know, we're still unclear of why she was upset. That's what at least two people claim. Then this weekend is when your father comes up. She wrecks his car. Her car has been put away because it's dropped a cylinder, needs to be worked on. She wrecks his car. He gets a rental. And so by Monday, already trying to figure all of this paperwork stuff out. That's how this timeline all goes together. Right. Okay. Very good. All right. And any prediction on how long this was going to take to all get resolved the you know car gets fixed he was gonna have to have a rental the plan was to still get her a car were they going to go shopping like when he came back the next weekend what do you think was the plan well the plan was to make get my dad's car fixed so that he could return back to umass and get mara a new car okay and that could take some time depending on right. how damaged the car. Obviously the car wasn't totaled. It's getting fixed, but it could take some time. Right. All right. And so we come up to that Monday, which is when all this, this disappearance gets started. Correct. Yep. That's right. Okay. So Mara then has whose car on that Monday? What car is she then driving? She has the, the car that's on three cylinders. The okay, one that so my dad told her, do not drive. Okay. And did your father know that he was she she was going to do that? Is that like a or was that something Mara do you think came up with on her own? My dad did not have any idea that she was planning or was continuing to drive that car. I think she okay. she did drive it around just the campus area to get to different things mm -hmm. against my dad's wishes. Right. 
Right. Okay. Three dot. Yeah. Drop the cylinder. You know, and we're not. We're. This isn't a uh, car podcast. But yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. It's just going to make it all worse to the point that the car just might have to be totaled. It's not even worth putting any more money into it. I guess that's yeah. what you have to remember. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't even worth a trade in. It was just. It was a bad product. I mean, mm. that that's the Saturn was. It was a. It was hyped up to be a, a great vehicle, but it just. It wasn't. Yeah, it was. There's a reason Saturn isn't around anymore. You're right. Okay. So just some questions. We have all these things, these things going on. Uh, maybe they look unusual now being that Mara went missing. But on the other hand, these, these are the things sometimes that teenagers do. I, I have to admit some of these things. I, I never have been in a car wreck and I've never been a drink or anything, but all of us as teenagers have stories you know, that uh, are unique to our lives. And had we gone missing, everybody would be dissecting those things too. That's just just the way, having covered almost 300 disappearances, this is just how it works. But just some questions for you. Given everything, uh, was your family a little concerned about Mara? Uh, Of course, we have the credit card. We have a car, you know, a, a car wreck. You know, what would you say the level of concern was overall from your father and mother concerning the mental and physical health of your sister Mar at that time? Well, our biggest concern was the eating disorder. And we were all aware of it. We were all trying to support and help. That was the the major concern. But she seemed to be making progress. So when I saw her that Christmas, she was doing much better um, in terms of trying to get through that 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 struggle. And she was much happier, as I stated earlier, at UMass. Um, and so we weren't we weren't concerned about her other than making sure that she had a, a handle on the eating disorder. Okay. And of course, like as we know now, you know, maybe you probably knew it in the early 21st century as well, is sometimes, uh, especially women, if they are going through abuse or mental health issues of they're going to school that can show in their grades. You know, grades start to drop, they start skipping class, things like that. Uh, to your knowledge, her grades, at least from the previous semester, were just fine. Yeah, there was no indication that she was, her, her schoolwork wasn't dropping. She was on the dean's list. She was going to her clinicals. And that's another reason why it was so important to get this more reliable car, because Mara had to travel all over uh, Massachusetts to go to her clinicals at different hospitals. So one of the prerequisites for the program was you need to have reliable transportation. And so at the time, Mara was getting rides with her classmates, uh, but she knew that she would need a more reliable car so that she could go to those on her own if need be. Um, so that was a major impetus for my dad to go up there and, and make sure she had a car that was working and safe and Right, reliable. Yeah, but in terms of schoolwork, missing classes, you know, she wasn't doing any of that. Okay. And what year was she in at UMass? She was in her junior. Okay. So she was going to have at least one year after this. And, you know, I don't know for nursing, do they have to maybe do some additional schooling after that, like doctors do? Or would, if she finished, you know, would that have been it? Yeah, she would have graduated with an RN and then would have gone to get a job. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. So that was the main concern, this eating disorder that had popped up, like you stated, when she was at um, West Point. Um, What about uh, her boyfriend, the situation? Of course, she talked to him. Has, after the fact, 
Uh, did he say anything? Was he personally concerned about anything she was saying to him outside of uh, your Kathleen sister? If they two talked about that, anything that was concerning him, anything she stated that was he, you know, that made him worried. It seemed like they were doing better. It seemed like they had a plan for Mara when she graduated to go get a job closer to him in Oklahoma, a nursing job. And that's another thing that drew her to nursing was it's um, you can get a job anywhere. Anywhere, And so if he if she were to stay with somebody that's in the army where you're moving every two years, it's a very transferable career. And so that's um, what they were planning. And like I said, I mean, they were doing the typical breakup, get back together. Other people, you know, during their breakup period were involved, but they always gravitated back to each other. Um, So he hasn't indicated that there were any problems other than they were, you know, just young and trying to figure out the whole how to do life together. Right. From being from New England uh, to Oklahoma, like it's like 1500 miles or something like that. Between yeah. them. And even with the internet, that's far. Okay. Yeah. Uh, had Mar ever, ever talked about anybody stalking her, any threats that she had fears, anything like that on the UMass campus or anywhere else? Any problems with anybody? No. No, zero. Okay. When was personally the last time you spoke tomorrow? Of course, you're uh, at this time, what are you doing? She's a junior at UMass. And what are you doing then at that point in February of 2004? Well, when I graduated West Point, I spent a year. So the entire year of 2003, I was overseas in South Korea as a second lieutenant in the army. So I didn't have a whole lot of time with Mara, except for when I came home for my two-week leave from um, South Korea. And then I had to go back and finish the second half. And when I saw Mara then, she we had a great time. Everything seemed fine. So I came back from my year tour in South Korea that Christmas on December 23rd. So I spent Christmas with Mara. Again, we had a great time. There was no indication that anything was wrong. Everything seemed great. And um, we were just excited. We were starting to plan, okay, now I'm back in the States. You know, let's, we need to, we need to experience and go on adventures. And, and you know, I, I'm, I have a job now and I have money coming in. And I have this apartment and you can come visit and things like that. So the last time I saw Mara was that Christmas. Okay. And the last time I spoke to Mara was when I went from Christmas break down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That was my second duty station. So I was in North Carolina when Mara went missing. So she called me Saturday from car shopping and she oh. was just telling me about the the different cars that they were looking at and what their plans were and, you know, talking smack about my dad. And ah, <laughs> that's, um, that's, that's what we love to do. Cause you know, he's there a parent. That's what you do. Um, so I talked to her in the afternoon, the Saturday before she disappeared. Okay. And everything was, and everything was great. Everything was just ordinary. Yep. Okay, great. And we know the last family member to see her was your father and it had to do with with all the paperwork and him going up there and car shopping and everything else. I should ask you uh, one more thing, uh, just regarding once again, her mental health, this eating disorder taking any sort of medication or anything like that? 
No, she wasn't. She she did have, Mara was a night owl and she did have an active mind. And so one of the things she struggled with was falling asleep. So she did take over-the-counter sleeping meds on occasion. Um, and that was the only thing. She wasn't into drugs or anything like that. Okay, no prescription medication, anything prescribed to her. And like I said, I'm not a doctor, but given uh whatever she she was recovering from anorexia bulimia there's no medication or anything like that for that right i'm sorry for all those people out there who are really knowledgeable i'm not but there's no medication or anything for like that something like that correct yeah she was she was just doing talk therapy with a with the therapist mm -hmm. okay very good all right we're now um of course now up to the day of her disappearance and um, we're going to just cover this from the point of view of Julie and, and her family. We're not going to go over the disappearance and then go back so much. We're going to try to do this as much day to day, and then we're going to get deeper into the, some of these points uh, a little later. So February 9th, 2004, um, do you specifically remember that day? Like you said, you're in North Carolina. Do you remember that day? Or No, nope, really? it was just a, a regular routine day for me. Okay. So now then let's move on to February 10th or maybe the first time that you were told, you know what, something's not right. And how did you find out about this? When was this? And then we'll talk about who told you, how did you find out? Right. So Mara went missing on Monday, February 9th at about 7.30 PM up in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Nobody in my family knew anything about it until the next day, midday on Tuesday, February 10th. And the way that it, that we found out was my sister Kathleen got a call from a police officer up in Haverhill, New Hampshire, saying we found this 1996 black Saturn sedan on the side of the road. And Kathleen immediately said, that's my sister Mara's car. And she initially thought it was Haverhill Mass because there is a Haverhill Mass. Hmm. Um, we had never heard of Haverhill, New Hampshire. I mean, it was close to where we vacationed and hiked and camped as kids, but it was on the other side of the Kankamagas Highway Route 112. So we spent all our time on the Kankamagas Highway because that's where all the trails are and campgrounds and things like that. Okay. So we weren't familiar with that particular area. Um, so the police officer tells Kathleen and immediately everyone is just in panic mode because one, she didn't tell anyone she was going to New Hampshire. Why was she in New Hampshire? She's supposed to be in school. Where is she? What do you mean the cars? And right. it was just panic pandemonium. So Kathleen calls my dad who was working um, in Connecticut on his travel job and she lets him know, hey, Mars missing. And so he's like, well, what do you mean she's missing? And again, the, the same panic comes up. And yeah. my brothers were in the house in Hanson with my mother. And Kathleen goes there and both my brothers find out. And then they call me in North Carolina. And I'm just kind of feeling helpless because I'm hundreds of miles away. And I have no idea why Mara would be up in New Hampshire on a Monday night. And the other thing was, why didn't we find out about it until Tuesday afternoon? You know, it was a full, almost 24 hours had passed. And, you know, I'm thinking we're missing 
crucial, valuable time by not even finding out about this until so long after, because in a missing person case, the minute the person disappears is when the trail is hot. And so we were starting out at a disadvantage because the trail had already started to go cold. So everybody's calling everybody. I don't remember who called me. I don't remember what I said. It's all a blur. It's just that trauma response is just a blur. All I remember is freaking out, panicked, and just confused. So, If I may just jump in for a moment. How far is it from the UMass campus to Haverhill, um, New Hampshire? How far is that? Just You don't have to give miles, just driving time. It's about two and a half hours from UMass campus to where the car was found. And we have to remember to get there, you actually have to go through Vermont. Yes. Right. So it's not just like one state over, it's two states over. Yep. You head north on Route 91, you go, you hit Vermont, and then you cross into New Hampshire. Okay. And like you stated, this is an area that was familiar to Mara from prior trips your family used to take up there. Not the not Haverhill specifically. Okay. We were familiar with the other side. Other side. Okay, yeah. very good. Um, was there any idea thinking there at the time that could have somebody just maybe she was really back on campus and somebody stole a car? Did that is that something or did was it very clear very 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 early on that yes, Mara was in the car and she was the one that was there for the for a, a time? Did you think maybe somebody just stole the car and went for a joyride or something? All of those scenarios, every scenario you can imagine, we thought about and contemplated all of them. Yep. Because it didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense why she would leave UMass on a Monday night in the middle of February and not tell anyone. Of course. Okay. And Kathleen got contacted first. Was like her contact information in the car or why wasn't it your father? Any idea? Well, um, the car was registered to my dad. So I found out about how all of this um, happened after. So I I believe the Haverhill Police Department tried to contact my dad, but they tried to contact him at his, uh, my grandfather's house, which was in Weymouth, which my dad stayed at for a little while after the divorce. So that was his um, home address. But of course, he wasn't there. He was in Connecticut, so they weren't able to make contact with my dad. And then the Haverhill Police Department called, um, I think they called Hanson Police Department, and they gave him our number. I think they may have called my mother's house in Hanson, and Kathleen might have been there. Again, it's all kind of a blur. Blur. Um, It's funny how trauma does that to, to your brain, you know. This was the worst day of my life and the most impactful day. And here I am and I can't tell you who called who and, and how it happened. I just, it just blocked out. Right. Uh, You should know I, my mother died uh, like four and a half years ago. I'm very much the same way. And it's just four and a half years ago, the day my mother died. I know. So I, I, you know, I don't have anybody missing in my family, but my mother died. So I have kind of the same. And I, my memory, anybody will tell you, my memory is excellent on most things. But for that, it's very much the same way. So I, I you know, I understand what you're going through as far as kind of the fog of some of this, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And one of the, one of the, 
the harder things is that is drawn in the question whether my family is being truthful or mm-hmm. are we suspicious or are we hiding things when in reality it's a very traumatic event when you get a phone call that your your loved one is missing right yeah any anybody who doesn't understand the trauma that goes over uh that goes on with disappearances doesn't understand disappearances at all period uh, right. i've never experienced it personally but having done this for almost seven years, trauma is a topic that comes up. Maybe not so much in these official interviews that we do here, but certainly behind the scenes, you know, talking is, you know, of course, I mostly talk to mothers of missing adult children, you know, and of course, you know, uh, yeah, trauma, uh, you know, a very common topic. Okay. All right. So you're finding out about this uh, and your sister calls you and everybody doesn't know what to think. It's totally unexplainable. You know, what's going on here? And, um, you know, do the police over the phone or do I realize maybe you can't drop everything you're doing, given your position at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, but I think your father did. Maybe some other people did. Um, Did the police over the phone? you know, kind of explain what it looked like happened or was that not something that was done until maybe your father, some of the other family member got up there, was on the scene and actually, you know, you know, was there, you know, looking the police eye to eye, you know, what do you remember? Well, it was very difficult to get in contact with the police. So after we found out that Mara was missing, my dad tried to contact Haverhill police back and he was very frantic and he wasn't able to get anybody on the phone to give him any information. And this is Tuesday night and he's just beside himself because he wants to find out what's going on. You know, how is the search progressing? What, what do you know? Um, And he wasn't getting, he wasn't getting any answers. So he knew right then that he needed to be up there. So he was in Connecticut and it's about a four or five hour drive. So throughout that night on Tuesday, he's trying to get more information. He's trying to call the boyfriend, the friends at UMass, call everybody. And then he decides early, early morning on Wednesday to go up himself. So he drives from Connecticut to go to Haverhill. He arrives at dawn and he expects to join the search but he was the search there was they hadn't done anything they hadn't done any search at all so immediately that set the tone between my family and the police and so my dad is adamant that something's wrong this is out of character yeah you know we need to go look for her it's already been at this point 36 hours so eventually the other members of my family my two brothers Kathleen and her fiance, they make it up to New Hampshire that Wednesday. Um, Mara's boyfriend, Bill, and his parents, they come, they go up to New Hampshire. Um, But the initial meeting on Wednesday morning between my dad and law enforcement was very strained because law enforcement wasn't telling us really anything about what they have done. And so my dad pushed, like, you need to search now. And so eventually, by Wednesday morning, they had the first search effort for Mara. And they had fish and game. And primarily what they were looking for was footprints in the snow um, to see if she had walked off into the woods. And they didn't find any. There was no footprints in the snow. 
And at that point, there was about two feet of snow and it had snowed a few days prior. The night she disappeared, it was actually dry, um, but there was snow accumulation. So you would see if someone had walked into the woods, you could not hide it because you'd sink up to your knees. Mm -hmm. Okay. At that time, did the police uh, explain what they thought happened regarding this? I mean, did I... Uh, uh, surely they understood the car was being driven by a young woman who was actually supposed to be on the University of Massachusetts campus, you know, two and a half hours away. Here her car is, you know, you know, backwards against this tree and everything. Did they not understand the gravity of that? Or, you know, how do you look at it now that, you know, the sense that we got from the investigators were was that they believed it was a DUI walk away which was okay. something that they had experience in where drivers get in a yeah. DUI, they go, they leave the scene, but then they come back. But here we were a day and a half later and Mara had not come back. So that was out, you know? So then police pivoted to a DUI walk away and they were saying that it was probably suicide. And my dad was adamant. He said, no, 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 that's not like her suicide was not something that she would do. And he said the only time that that subject of suicide had ever come up was when Mara and my dad were watching a movie. And so he's, he talks about this movie. And then that was twisted into my dad believed and brought up the theory of suicide when it was totally mis mischaracterized. He did not. He was adamant that it was not suicide. So police pushed that suicide theory, even despite everyone that knew her saying absolutely not, that was not something that she would consider. And then, you know, we didn't find any footprints. We didn't find anything. We didn't find a body. And so that's why I tend to rule out the suicide theory, because the area where she went missing was searched by a lot of people. And if she had committed suicide, we would have found something. Uh, we're going to talk specifically about these 911 calls here in a moment. But at that time when your father showed up, I realized we have to realize you were not there. We understand that. But did they, did the police tell your family, your father about these 911 calls early on? Or was this not something that popped up till later? We'll get into specifics of them in a moment. But did he know about them? When my dad showed up on Wednesday, th that was something that they discussed. They said a neighbor heard a loud thud and called 911. And then another neighbor passed by the scene, had a brief interaction with the driver, who we have to assume was Mara. Um, so there was two 911 calls. So my family was aware that two of the neighbors had um, witnessed the around the time of the accident, um, what happened. Okay, so they were aware of that. And I guess then it would then verify the idea that yes, it was Mara driving the car. It was not something where somebody carjacked or she could have, I guess, been carjacked or something, but it wasn't like a stolen car where she's still on campus and the car ends up two states away. Being that somebody, we're gonna talk about it specifically, did see her, she was at the car. She was there at the right. car. Okay. All right. Uh, you talked about the searches, but very generally we'll get, I want to ask you these questions outside of the car. Any of these searches find anything connected to Mara? Of course, going down that road into the woods, 
anything connected to or found at all outside of the immediate area of the car? Never, not one thing in 19 years. Wow. Okay. And you've already brought this up, but I wanted to ask you this specifically anyway. Any footprints in the snow found going in any direction from the car? Not a single footprint that wasn't accounted for. Okay. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to get, we're going to backtrack now. We're going to do uh, the specifics of this and we're going to have to start back at when Mara was still on the campus. And I have this titled, it seems, I just have it termed here. You can use your own words, of course, Julie. Mara's preparation to leave and we have to go, you know, of course, eventually somebody went back to the campus and uh, how did that all happen? You know, the the state of her dorm room, we're going to talk, I want to talk about the state of her dorm room. Dorm room, we know she told this about a death in the family. Let's just talk about this now. How did that all transpire? Okay, it's a lot. So it I'll is, start from, I'll start from, yes, please. I'll start from what we know. So what we know, we don't know a lot, but there mm -hmm. are some facts that we do know. And yes. these are based on phone records, emails, and other um, sources. So okay. the first thing that we know is early, early on Monday, the day that Mara disappeared, February 9th, she submitted her homework assignment. And her homework assignment was to look up maternity terms. And one piece of misinformation uh, that has been out there for years was Mara's search for these maternity terms indicated that she may have been pregnant. But that the actual maternity terms were to look up pregnancy terms. And so that has become its own, <laughs> its own animal. Um, but I just want to make that clear. That was the assignment. So she emails us the assignment. I think it was 3.32 a.m., which, again, Mara was a night owl, um, but she was an excellent student. So here she is mm -hmm. doing her homework. Um, and then she goes and does a number of Internet searches. And she's looking up directions and she's looking up places in Burlington, the Berkshires, and just kind of vague directions at that point. Then she concludes her internet searches at about 4 a.m. And then there's no activity until the next uh, mid-morning. So we have to assume she got some sleep and then she wakes up and she does some more internet searches again looking up directions and she emails her professors and says that there is a fictitious death in the family and there was no death in the family and she indicates that she'd need some time off um and i just want to make a note about that you know people have asked me about this all the time what do i make of that and to me it just seems like a surefire way for people to not ask probing questions. Okay. So if you say that you have a death in the family, it kind of stops any additional questions. So mm -hmm. I think that was her excuse. You know, it's a, an excuse used by many college people and all kinds of people that they need time off for a death in the family. No different than calling in sick to work when you aren't really sick. Exactly. So okay. she does that. So it, this is the start of what looks like some sort of hasty plan. Then she calls a condo owner in a town called Bartlett, New Hampshire. And Bartlett, New Hampshire is a place where my family had stayed many times. 
And this particular condo unit, um, we had not stayed in that unit, but we had stayed in that condo complex before. So it was a place she was familiar with. She doesn't end up making any reservation. Um, and then she calls a number. It's an information line at a ski resort in Burlington, Vermont. And that was 1-800-GO-STOW. And this would have been a place where she would have just received information like ski conditions, weather conditions, um, things that were happening, events. Um, so she does not book a reservation because there was no way to, um, but she was calling these, these different places. And one thing that I think is important is that these two places that she called are geographically separated by almost two hours. So she's calling Burlington, she's calling Bartlett. So to me, that indicates she doesn't really have a plan. Okay. She just kind of has a rough outline. I want to go north. That's what it says to me. If I can so ask, being that we know where the car ended up being wrecked, uh, was that in the direction of either of those places that you just stated there? Yep, it was in the direction of both until the exit. So Mara was going up 91. The exit she got off, you could have gone to the west, and that would have taken you to Burlington, or you could have gone to the east, and that would take you to Bartlett. Okay. Now, I've thought that perhaps she missed the exit to Burlington if, in fact, that was her destination, and she had missed the exit um, back at White River Junction, which would have been more of a direct route to Burlington. And she gets to the exit that she did get to, and she may have seen Route 112, which would have been familiar to her because we had spent so much time on the other side of 112. Yeah. But when she got off at the exit, she could have found a way to get to Burlington if she went west, but she decides to go east. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Please continue. I should ask you one more question regarding this. How long did it take after disappearance for you to uh, find this information and who found it? I guess this was on her computer. Who found it and how long after her disappearance? These basic pieces of information were, um, were uh, communicated to my family pretty quickly after. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, you, you don't want to say who found it or it was a police in actually oh. UMass or if, if you can, yeah. if you can't was, say it, you don't feel comfortable saying it. I'm not telling you to. I'm just asking. No, no, that's a good point. No, I, I have no problem telling that. So it, the the police in Haverhill contacted the UMass police and they sent somebody to go look at her computer. And that's how okay, we found right. that. Very good. And so Thank the you. UMass police we're communicating with the Haverhill police and that's how we kind of piece it together. Also, okay. there was a handwritten note card with handwritten directions to Burlington, oh, okay. as well as these printed out map quest uh, directions. In the again, car. Yep. Because back in the day, you know, she had, <laughs> yes. a, she, she had a cell phone, yes. but it wasn't a smartphone. So it's not like right. she could pull up right. Google Maps. You know, right. it, this was right. the time where you, you pull out the, the, the hard copy map and figure it out. Yeah, um, those were the days. Yeah. Right, so, right. Please continue. So we have these these things. She looks like she wants to go on a trip somewhere. She's yeah. checking out these places to the north. Maybe she missed a turn. I don't want to speculate too much, but she's looking at these different locations that really aren't that close to each other. But where the car wreck is, is in general area of these locations. Right. General. But it's yeah. it's headed, it's it's the direction towards Bartlett. Okay. 
It's headed towards east, towards Bartlett. So she's making all of these um, uh, searches, and then she emails the professors, and then she contacts one of her nursing classmates and says, hey, I want to return some borrowed clothes. And her nursing classmate said, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But Mara was very conscientious. So she ends up bringing the clothes that she had borrowed during one of their clinicals. They got in a snowstorm and Mara ran out of regular clothes. So her friend, Aaron, let her borrow um, some corduroys or something. And Mara wanted to return them. So Mara goes to Aaron's room and knocks on the door and Aaron was taking a nap and she doesn't answer the door. But when she wakes up for her nap, she uh, sees this bag of neatly folded clothes at the doorstep. And that's something that Aaron has regretted. You know, maybe if she had opened the door, she would have got a better sense of Mara's mental state the day that she disappeared, but there was no interaction there. Um, then Mara goes to the an ATM and she withdraws $280, which left just shy of $20 in her bank account. And then she heads to a liquor store and she purchases roughly $40 worth of alcohol. And she also returned 79 cans, which is bizarre. Wow. Um, considering, you know, in hindsight, it's bizarre because if you're it planning is. to disappear, what, what do you, why, are, why are you doing that? I, I have why, to ask, where do where did those cans come from? She surely did not drink that all herself. So where did they come from? I think that's something that she did often. I think that she wanted to, you know, get the extra change from the, the cans and also be a good human and recycle. Okay. Um so she ends up getting $3.95, and it's on the receipt that was found in her car after the disappearance. So she returns the cans, gets the alcohol, and then at some point, she goes and picks up the accident forms that she promised my dad. So another data point that indicates to me her plan was not to disappear, mm-hmm. because all of the actions that she took the day of the disappearance... I can't square it with someone that wants to disappear. If you are planning to disappear, why would you submit your homework? Why would you recycle 79 cans? Why would you pick up accident forms? You know, she she took her school books with her, her birth control with her, but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. So she does that. And then at 4.37 p.m., the day she disappeared, she checks her voicemail. And that was the last known activity on her cell phone that day was when she checked her voicemail. But let me back up a little bit because she did email her boyfriend the day she disappeared and they seemed to be play play phone tag. And she indicated in her email that she just didn't feel like talking to anyone, but she promised to call him back later and that she loved him. And then they played phone tag for a little bit. It seemed like there might have been some avoidance in there. She, she, you know, it seemed like they would call each other, leave a voicemail, and then they would both listen to the voicemail, but they never connected the day that she disappeared. So to me, that indicates that she she didn't want to talk to anybody, um, including her boyfriend. But she did write that email um, saying that she loved him and she'd call him later. So 4.37 happens, checks her voicemail, and then we have to assume she heads north 
destination unknown, doesn't yeah. tell anybody other than her professors that she's going to be away. Right. And then the next activity that we have is at 727 when we get the first 911 call. Okay. So the way, once again, you know this area, I've never been there. This time from the last phone call to the wreck, does that kind of work out as if she left that area and went directly there? And I realize we're going to get to her stopping to get gas and everything in a bit. But is it does it re kind of roughly work out? It does. It works out. Um, it We don't know exactly when she went to get the accident forms, but they were found in her car. So she did all of these activities and we know that we don't know exactly when she left UMass, but we know that there was these stops and one of the stops was to pick up these accident forms. So the time tracks, it takes about two and a half hours to get from the campus up to where the car was found. All right. We have to remember this. We're going to talk about these 911 calls specifically in a moment, but we have to also remember 727 for the first call. This would then be a couple minutes at least after the wreck happened. It's not like the person's holding the phone and waiting for somebody to wreck outside to call 911. There's going to be some sort of delay there, maybe a couple minutes. So we have to right. keep that in mind. Um, just a few uh, follow-up questions from what you said already. The $40 in alcohol, do we know exactly what she bought? And you are, I'm not a drinker, but for all the drinkers out there who might understand something like this, a lot of alcohol that she bought, dare I say, for more than one person, or does it seem like it was just expensive alcohol and it was from one, one person? Your impression? My impression was it was a lot of alcohol for one person. However, I do know that Mars favorite favorite drink was a black Russian and in a black Russian, you need vodka and you need Kahlua. And typically those types of alcohol are sold in larger quantities. So okay. the, the price would be indicative of the larger quantity. So you can't really buy vodka ingredients for one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Cause the bottles are a certain size. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I right. can't. Explain. I guess what I'm saying is forty dollars purchased by one person. Once again, as a non-drinker myself, sounds like a lot of money. Of course, we're also thinking about this in 2004 terms, not 2023 terms, where inflation rate has been a little bit the last couple of years. Um, but still, a, a large purchase, alcohol purchase for that time. Right. Okay. And um, the other question I have for you is going back, uh, let's talk a little bit about the state of her dorm room. A lot has been made about this, a lot of maybe jumping to conclusions and things. And I should ask you, did anybody take any pictures of the dorm room and, and all of that? Or is that lost to the sands of time? What, what do we know about this? And what do you know about the state of her dorm room? Well, the police originally reported that Mara's dorm room was all packed up. However, they didn't know what my family knew because when Mara first went to move into the dorms after winter break, she, she had to, to unpack all her stuff because at UMass they had to put all the stuff up off the floors so that they could clean it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so my brother Curtis and my mother visited Mara at her dorm relatively soon after she moved in. And so they were in there physically. They saw it. Mara was excited to show them her single dorm because, you know, she, she liked her quiet time. And uh, so Curtis and my mother saw, saw the dorm before the disappearance. And then 
Once she disappeared, the police went in and took photos, and Curtis had seen those photos as well, and he indicates that her dorm looked more unpacked than when he saw it when she initially moved in. So to me, that means Mar just was in the process of unpacking, which wouldn't have been abnormal for her because, you know, she's got all these different activities to do. She's back at school. She's got friends to meet up with. She's going to, you know, do all this stuff for school. So I I feel Mara had just been in the process of unpacking and to the investigators who didn't know the situation, they just saw it as, oh, she was packing up the dorm. As if, as if she's leaving campus, maybe leaving school or something. That's the way I interpret it. Why? Because they might not have known they, of course, didn't know more at all in the situation she was in. Yeah. Yeah. And also, they the police, one of the initial police reports was that there was a personal note that was found out on top of the boxes, mm-hmm. which would indicate that Mara packed her dorm and left some sort of goodbye note. And that was totally mischaracterized because it wasn't a personal note and it wasn't on top of the boxes. It was a two-year-old email that was printed out from her boyfriend to Mara. And it was stuffed inside a basketball program. So the investigators had to go through this basketball program and they find what they think is a smoking gun is this two-year-old email, not even written from Mara, written from Bill. And they put it out as a personal note. So to anyone on the outside, you're going to think, oh, well, that's a suicide note. When in fact, it wasn't anything near that. So we had to try to fight with investigators to correct that. And of course, they never did. So it just bolstered their suicide theory. Yeah, confirmation bias. They think something happened. So anything popped up has to be into that particular vision. Right. Okay. Uh, do any particular reason she say, I don't want, you know, these are probably things we none of us were supposed to see anyway or hear about anyway. But what is there a reason that she saved that particular email? I don't, I don't really want to get into if it's something very, very personal. But having seen it, is there a reason that she saved it that you could see? Yeah, it was, it was an email from Bill saying that he was sorry for some infidelity. And so as a young woman, that was probably something that she kept around to remind herself anytime she got mad at him or they got into a tiff. I mean, I would do the same thing. (laughs) Okay. All right. So that's what the email was. And she kept it around, uh, printed it out because, you know, even the, you know, these days we usually don't keep, you know, printed out emails around for two years unless it's something, of course, significant, which that sounds like it was. Now I should ask you, you have a lot of, you've gone through a lot of information here from the ATM. Were they, was this all co- collected by the um, Massachusetts State Police or did your family have a hand in some of this, like the phone calls and things? You know, how was this all information all collected and how long did it all take to kind of get this very accurate picture of the day that she went missing? How long did that take? Well, all of the all of the things that we're talking about now, we investigators knew probably within the first two weeks because okay. investigators were in the room. They got into her um, computer. They looked through her things. And then it wasn't Massachusetts State Police. It was the UMass police feeding information to Haverhill. Okay. All right. So that's, what the, that's how the ATM, somebody got her bank records, somebody got the phone records. Um, things like that. Right. 
Okay. All right. So would you say, it sounds to me, once again, I have a lot of disappearance experience. This is more than your average police department does. Uh, is that your impression as well as them collecting all this information? How would you? Well, I, th- you I think, that? yeah, I think after they realized it wasn't a DUI walk away and it wasn't suicide, they took it more seriously. And within the first two weeks, the New Hampshire state police came in and took over because the Haverhill Police Department was only four officers deep and not equipped to handle what would end up being the biz- biggest missing person case in the state's history. Surely is. Okay. I want to ask you a couple questions about the reservation. She's looking up, looking at these different places. Anything in any of that saying how long she planned to stay? Did she ever type it? Once again, we're talking about internet technology of 19 years ago, but still any indication of you know, if she was looking at one of these places to stay for a few days, was that ever indicated? Did she ever talk to anybody actually on the phone in any of these places? Hey, I'm looking for a reservation for three days. Anything like that? No. And that's one of the the bigger frustrations for my family because we know that Mara called that condo owner in Bartlett the day that she disappeared because it's on her phone records. And police had the phone records relatively soon after the disappearance. But they did not call that condo owner until months and months later. So by the time they contacted the condo owner, only because my family said, you know, after months of not finding anything, we said we're going to start from the beginning again. And we went through line by line each phone number and ended up calling each phone number. When we got to the condo owner's phone number, we called her and she said she so much time had passed that she doesn't remember specifically what Mara asked her. So that was a huge missed opportunity. And only then, and also we asked if she had ever been contacted by law enforcement and she had never been contacted by law enforcement, which, you know, just was a gut punch for my family. So then finally, after we're like, what are you doing? How could you not call every number that she called the day before the day she disappeared, then they contacted the condo owner. But it had been so much time that the condo owner um, didn't remember specifics. So we still don't know the duration because, you know, it, it was just a missed opportunity. Yep. Yeah, that happens too. Um, so there's no proof that she ever had any reservations made anywhere. There's nothing like any meals, like, for example, like we get them today after the fact, like you missed your reservation. So you're being billed. Nothing like that ever appeared in Mara's email after the day of her disappearance. Not that we're aware of. Yeah. And of course, the investigators took her hard drive and they haven't shared really anything about what was on it. Okay. Uh, Speaking of the hard drive, I just have to ask these questions. Being that it seems they went on there and found these places that she was looking at, to your knowledge, ever any searches regarding starting a new life, suicide, or going to Canada? Have you ever heard anything about her ever doing as searches for any of that at any time, not just a couple days before any point? Never. Never. Okay. Zero evidence of any of that. Okay. Regarding the ATM, uh, was there a camera there uh, that videoed her? Did it show her by herself? Was like this the bank that she usually used? What can you say about that? Yeah, the ATM is an interesting piece to this whole thing because police 
had the ATM CCTV um, video of when Mara went in there, but they'd never released it and never showed my family for 13 years. And that's just very odd in a missing person case because we have to assume those were the last known images of said missing person. Why wouldn't you share it wide and far or at least with the families? But it took them over a decade to even show it to us. Um, and so we've seen the still images from the last known photos of her and she appears alone at the ATM. Okay. And this is her bank, whatever branch it was, just the bank to your knowledge that she usually went to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, regarding any interaction she had today, obviously she had an interaction with the person at the liquor store, but anybody on campus, any friends, any people down the hall, any people speak to her, anybody you were ever able to track anybody down who actually spoke to her that day, just in passing. Just her nursing school classmate who spoke to her on the phone. And when she spoke to Mara on the phone about returning the clothes, um, she indicated that Mara seemed upset. Um, but that was the only person that we know that she interacted with that day. Okay. So that was over the phone though. Nobody in person. Once again, besides going to the liquor store where she bought the liquor, nobody on the campus standing there in the hall, you know, eye to eye, face to face conversation. Nobody's come forward. No one's come forward. Okay. Overall, this question is right there in the outline. Then we're going to move on to the location of the wreck and talk about the car and the 911 calls. Um, your opinion, I realize you weren't there, but were Mars things left in a state, in her dorm, that led you to believe that she wasn't coming back or that she was coming back? Everything that we know indicates that Mara was coming back. And that is the first part of the June 9th, 2023 interview I did with Mara's sister, Julie Murray. I thank her for appearing on both audio and video for this episode. Part two of the interview is a combination of talks Julie and I had on June 9th and then on June 12th. I realize that many people have done map videos concerning Mars' disappearance, but I have chosen to do my own, with my own insights. You can now find it at Unfound's YouTube channel. As I stated before the interview played, I will be doing a summation for this part one. It will be coming in a few seconds. In it, I will only sum up what has been discussed so far. Then I will do another summation at the end of part two, where I discuss items particular to that section. Then I will follow that with a wrap-up of the entire coverage of Mara Murray's disappearance. Okay, a summation for this part one. What catches my attention the most about Mara and what was going on with her at the time is how her life seemed the opposite of what I remember about college. Granted, that was 30 years ago, but I can't believe the following idea has changed much. And that is, as long as a student's grades were good, then everything else in life could be managed. Good grades cure a lot of ills, and usually good students would never do anything to change that. Yet, with Mara, this was not the situation. She had fine grades, but whatever else was going on with her, 
whether in her mind or some external stress from a person or situation, that was enough for her to put those grades and her education in jeopardy by lying about a family death, by leaving campus and planning to miss classes for no reason for at least a few days, by taking a chance that her car would break down, stranding her two states away, thus exposing the lie she told her professors about that family death. And remember, Mar was already on probation for the credit card issue. To put it another way, and this is where the theme for this episode comes in, say Mar had plans to lounge around at some motel in New Hampshire with one person, five people, ten people, it doesn't matter. And she didn't disappear. Instead, she reached that location. But then when she went to start her car to go back to Massachusetts, the engine totally blew up. The car wouldn't move an inch, which was certainly possible. What then? My guess is she would have had to have called somebody, and Mara would have had to admit that she lied to her professors. And I think it's reasonable to believe Mara's family would have found out. Really? How did that car get to New Hampshire, Mara? And although I've never spoken to Mr. Murray, he doesn't seem like the type of guy who would have run interference for any of his kids. If they lied, he would expect them to deal with the consequences. And surely given the credit card issue and the now exposed lying to her professors, this would have been grounds for at least a suspension from the University of Massachusetts. Why would a good student like Mara risk that? Given what we know, though, about Mara and her actions before leaving campus, there is a very logical reason to think that Mara herself believed she could go wherever she was going, in a car on the verge of collapse, while lying to her professors and that she would be able to pull this scheme off and get back to campus without anyone knowing she lied. Not her instructors, not her family, not even her classmates and friends. That's a very, dangerously so, thin line for someone to walk who had as much to lose personally and publicly as Mara did. And if you think I'm exaggerating... The UMass Code of Conduct booklet in 2023 is 27 pages long. And in section 2.4, part A, under standards, quote, The functions of the university depend on honesty, integrity, and civility among its community members. Accordingly, the University of Massachusetts Amherst expects a higher standard of conduct than the minimum required to avoid disciplinary action. So, no matter if you believe Mara was murdered, or ran off to Canada, or committed suicide, or planned to return in three days, no matter what you believe, before Mara ever left campus, she was putting her educational future in danger, despite her grades being very good. Why would she take a chance like that? I ask you to think about that as you go to part two of my interview with Julie Murray, 
while remembering that disappearances are about people, not circumstances.